turn in your copy of the scriptures or scroll in your Bible app to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 40, that's where we're going to be spending our time today. Luke chapter 8 and verse 40. And if you are physically able, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's holy word? Follow along silently as I read aloud, beginning in Luke chapter 8 and verse 40. This is what the word of God says. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and Falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who is it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the the crowds are surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. For I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she she came trembling and falling down before him, declared and declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John And James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You'll notice this morning I've placed a chart in your outline. It's in a small attempt to get you to see why I believe this passage of Scripture is so, so special and so unique. And that is because uh, as you read it, you're constantly reminded of Jesus' power and his compassion in a way that I think is fairly unique to the scriptures. And here's why. I think Luke gives us a glimpse here, not just of what happened, that we expect, right? He's a historian. He, he tells us what Jesus did. But it's not just that. I think we get a glimpse of how Jesus felt. How Jesus felt. It's a good reminder to us that Jesus, the Son of God, very God himself, in whose image we are created felt the emotions that we felt, felt anger and joy and sorrow and all the things that we feel, he felt as well. And he sympathizes with us. What drove Jesus to do what he did? 
how personal his ministry to people really was. And so I sketched this out on my whiteboard in my office as I was studying it and realized Jesus' power and Jesus' compassion are intertwined within this account, sometimes even within the same verse. You'll notice there's different parts of the same verse listed in both of those columns in a way that I think is fairly unique. So I'm actually not going to refer to this chart throughout the rest of the sermon, but it'll be there for you to look back on as we walk through the text or for you to bring up at parties or however you want to use it. Pick it up in verse 40. Verse 40 says this, when Jesus returned, well, he returned from the country of the Gerasenes where he had just healed a demon-possessed man. Now, stay in Luke 8, but go back to Luke 8 and verse 36. It says, And those who had seen it, meaning seen him heal a demon-possessed man, told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him, that's Jesus, to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. Now, you might think like, wow, but he just really he just healed a demon-possessed man, and they're just kicking him out. And I know that may seem like an odd thing to us, but if you think about it, that's a terrifying experience, right? There's a demon-possessed man who Jesus just healed, and all of a sudden, these demons came out of this man, ran into a bunch of pigs. The pigs ran down a bankman into a lake, and they're drowning. So you have dead floating pigs, the man over here who is, who is, who is no longer demon-possessed, and then there's Jesus standing there, and they're like, he did it. This is kind of cool. Did he take on the demons? Can he bring the demons back? Like they don't, they're, they're like, can you just go, maybe get back in the boat? And thank you, this is good, but please leave. They're seized with great, great fear. And so it does us well to think through what would it have liked to have been there in that, to have been there in that moment. It's a terrifying experience. And so they ask him to leave. They're seized with great fear. But in verse 40, back on the Jewish side of the lake, the people welcomed Jesus back. In fact, the text says they were actively waiting for him, looking forward to his return. And then in verse 41, it says, there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. That means he was responsible for overseeing all the activities that took place within the synagogue. Maybe he was like the campus pastor of the synagogue. Uh, all the activities. He was a part of the religious elite of Jesus' time, which also would have connected him with the Pharisees and the scribes who hated Jesus and wanted to destroy him. So to see this guy fall at the feet of Jesus in public would have been quite the scene. And that's because at the end of the day, his ranking as one of the religious elite, his dedication to Judaism and the group with which he rolled, all doesn't matter to him at this time as much as the fact that he is a dad. And he's the father of a 12-year-old girl, his only child. This is a desperate man. This is a fearful father. He'd been waiting for Jesus to return, and when he finally does, he throws himself at Jesus' feet, begging him, to go to his house, which Jesus agrees to do. If you look at verse uh, 42, excuse me, 41, it says, and, all, and as they went, wait, where am I? No, verse 42, it says, as Jesus went, the people pressed around him. So we're told that he asks him to go to his house, and then Jesus is going. And off they go en route to Jairus' house, and Jairus is desperately hoping they'll make it in time, and they hit first century traffic. Verse 41 says, the people pressed around him. Now we have to remember the crowds that followed Jesus were a pretty big deal. In fact, in Mark chapter 3, Jesus asked his disciples to have a boat prepared for him lest he be crushed by the crowds. When Jesus drew a crowd, it was both exciting and frightening, and the people are pressing in on him. And then Luke tells us of one particular 
woman. Look at verse 43. It says, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, in your mind, if you would, let's split the screen. Picture, if you will, on one side of the screen, Jairus with his wife 12 years ago celebrating the birth of their daughter, right? Great joy, great excitement, so happy to have a healthy little girl. He is a dad. She is a mom. They're excited. On the other side of that screen, 12 years ago, this woman starts to suffer from a condition that she's never had before. And she's bleeding and it won't stop. Both of these events happening, so for as long as Jairus' daughter was alive is as long as this woman suffered from this condition. As Jairus is helping his daughter take, his, take her first steps, right, seeing if she could take that step on her own, this woman is going to the doctor and another doctor and another doctor and another doctor. As Jairus is feeding his daughter, I don't know what they did, but can't like, here comes the airplane. Wasn't a thing. I don't know. Right? Here comes the wagon. I, I, I don't know. Feeding his daughter, wiping her mouth, cleaning the food out from the rolls, the creases. And this woman is still bleeding. Condition is likely in some way, shape, or form worsening. On this side of the screen, you have Jairus. Right, kneeling down, putting his daughter to bed, praying with her, maybe singing to her. And this woman cries herself to sleep. Perhaps in pain, wondering what the future might hold. As Jairus' daughter grew stronger, healthier, this woman likely grew weaker and fatigued from a, a constant blood loss, likely some level of, of chronic pain. As Jairus brings his daughter to the synagogue for worship, this woman can't go to the synagogue. Because she's ceremonially unclean for as long as the condition persists, according to Leviticus 15. Touch is a powerful thing. Just a, a gentle touch. I think I'm a pretty affectionate dad. I'm always loving on my kids, always kissing them on the head. We hold hands and we pray before meals. I'm usually holding Sarah's hand. And every time I kiss it when we're done. I squeeze Silas's pudgy cheeks. I kiss them. I have this thing where I squeeze 
I squeeze, but I leave this finger free so I can push his nose at the same time. I'm good at it. I've done this. I mean, years I've been doing this. I hug Jonathan and tell him I'm proud of him. I kiss him on the head. I gently touch Emma's cheek and tell her she's my favorite daughter, and she reminds me that she's my only daughter. And I tell her, that just means you've locked in the spot. Don't sass me. I bet Jairus was that way with his daughter. I don't think I'm unique. I'm a dad. He was a dad. I'm sure Jairus loved his daughter tremendously. But this woman couldn't be touched. Can we just think about that for a minute? Couldn't be touched. No one in her family could touch her or they would be ceremonially unclean. In fact, they couldn't touch what she touched or they would be ceremonially unclean. She, she had her chair. Only she sat in it. She had her own dish and only she used it. If she wanted to clean, that's fine. As long as she cleaned it and apart from the other family stuff. Her family didn't wash her clothes. She couldn't hug her father. She couldn't love on her nieces and, and nephews. No touch. And I read up a little on what would physicians have prescribed to a woman of this condition back in ancient times? She would have endured a tremendous amount of pain. Quote, one remedy consisted of drinking a goblet of wine containing a powder compounded with rubber, alum, and garden crocuses. Another treatment consisted of a dose of Persian onions cooked in wine, administered with the summons, arise out of your flow of blood. Other physicians prescribed sudden shock or the carrying of the ash of an ostrich's egg in a certain cloth. Jairus' daughter had likely never been without, didn't know too much of what it meant to be in want. He was a part of the religious elite. He probably did pretty well. But that aside, she's only lived 12 years of life. Most 12-year-olds have had most of what they needed provided for them. Look at verse 43. Verse 43 said this woman spent all her money on physicians. She had nothing. Now, I just want to pause for a moment and say, some of you know what it's like to be this woman. You suffer from a chronic condition of some sort with no relief in sight. Doctor after doctor after doctor after doctor, no relief. Specialist after specialist after specialist, no relief. Your web history is just 
link after link after link, reading up on how you might find relief of your symptoms. You don't want it to be at the center of your life, yet since it's chronic, it seems to find its way there time and time again. Probably very few people realize the extent to which you work around it. Very few people realize how much of your day is planned around the symptoms that accompany this condition. But you make decisions around your symptoms. Maybe you need a certain amount of sleep. Or it's going to be really rough for the next day, the next several days, the next week. Maybe you need to be in bed by a certain time or won't be able to sleep through the night. And so you don't want to be antisocial. You want to go out with friends. You know it's going to take you out later than the ideal time for you to turn in for the night. And everyone else goes home to go to bed and you just go home and and suffer. You decide to go out on a Friday knowing that you'll be down for the count on Saturday and Sunday. Maybe you just, don't, you just don't go out anymore. You, you want people to pray for you, but you find yourself hesitant to ask for prayer. It's not because you, you don't believe in prayer. It's not because you don't want people praying for you, but you, you just can't help but feel a little silly asking for it again. It's the same prayer request again. You still need to be prayed for, but... Again, people tell you they've been praying for you and ask how you're doing. You almost feel like you're letting them down. You wish you could offer some encouraging news that their prayers are being answered in some way, but you'd be lying. They're they're not. You don't doubt God hears you. You don't doubt God can help you. And that's why you find it incredibly frustrating that it seems like he just won't. You know what it's like to be this woman. In some way, what it's like to have chronic fatigue, chronic pain, constant symptoms that just won't let up. And there's no sign of them There's no sign of them letting up. And so you say along with the hymn writer, does Jesus care? Like, does he he care about this? Is he too busy being God, busy interceding for the sins of his people? And he's just, look, I'm, I'm actually the only reason you guys are cool with my father. I can't. I can't no more. I've got, I've got, I'm interceding on your behalf. I'm doing a lot of things right now. You got heaven coming to you, so you got a little bit of pain in this life. I mean, cry me a river. But we say along with the hymn writer, oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. It's passages like this that when we see how Jesus responds... We know he cares deeply. His heart is touched with my grief. I want to pause now. And I want to pray for the chronically ill in our family. Uh, It could be you that are chronically ill. 
other people may know about it. Maybe nobody knows about it. But Jesus does. And so, I'm praying now for you, for your loved ones, for people who have pain and suffering with no relief in sight. Posture matters. If you're physically able, would you bow and knee with me before the Lord as we go before his throne of grace and pray? Lord, we come before you on bended knee. We know you hear us regardless of posture, but sometimes, Lord, during especially troubling times, during especially specifically difficult prayer requests, we just want to bow before you as our sovereign and our king, as our savior. And we come before you acknowledging that you are in control of every one of our body parts. Nothing is outside of your control. We acknowledge, Lord, that while we are confused, you are not. While we look for answers, you search not. You know our suffering, you know why it happens. And you have not lost control for a single minute. And for that, even though we suffer, even though we endure pain, we are grateful for your control. Lord, I want to lift before you people who are in chronic pain. I want to lift before you people who have become where misery is the norm. They're used to being unhappy to a certain degree. Lord, I want to lift before you people who are used to struggling in some way, shape, or form. Lord, I want to lift before you the infertile. I lift before you those who can't, just can't sleep. We are reminded of the frailty of our bodies. And we pray, O oh God in heaven, Without apology and without shame, would, your, would you heal? Lord, would you, would you touch? Would you bring answers where they are needed? Yes. And Lord, would you continue to provide endurance and comfort? Lord, would people who suffer well sing along with the hymn writer, Oh, yes, he cares. I, I know he cares. Would they be reminded from passages such as this one, that you are all-powerful and all-compassionate and that your heart is truly touched with our griefs. You are a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And so we ask, Lord, would you move mightily among us, providing comfort, endurance, hope, help, and healing for your name's sake, for your glory. Amen. Point number one. You need to remember that we have an all-powerful, all-compassionate Savior. An all-powerful, all-compassionate Savior. 
Two things that need to be married together because if they were separated, we'd be in a lot of trouble. If Jesus was all-powerful but not compassionate, he wouldn't have healed them because he wouldn't have cared. Right? Luke, uh, earlier in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 4, verse 43, Jesus has said, I, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns. I got to go to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. He could have been like, I have one job, man. I have one job. I'm preaching the kingdom of God. I got to stay focused. I can't allow other things to distract me, but he's compassionate. Oh yes, he cares. I know he cares. He didn't have to do miracles to authenticate his ministry. Lots of times people say that's why Jesus did, did miracles because he authenticated his ministry. Let me tell you something. Jesus was pretty sure about how the story was going to end. He could have went through his life saying, I'm preaching. I'm going to, the last 43 days of my earthly ministry are going to be like so awesome. There will be no doubt that I am the son of God. I don't have to do miracles. I don't do any of these miracles. Listen, I'm going to preach. Then I'm going to die. Then they're going to bury me. Then I'm going to walk out of the grave. I'm not finished. Then I'm going to walk for another 40 days with other people. And then, guess what? I'm going to float away. They're going to know I'm the son of God. I preach. I die. I rise. I fly. I'm done. I'm out. Jesus didn't have to do miracles to prove to anybody that he was and is the Son of God. He does these things because he cares. Oh, yes, he cares. He has compassion on people. He's willing to be interrupted and stopped and inconvenienced if it meant that he would show compassion towards those who needed it. And here in this passage, we have people who desperately, desperately need it. Jairus's daughter on that side of the screen is now at death's door. That's literally what the Greek says in verse 42. The literal reading would be he had an only daughter about 12 years old and she was literally at death's door. And this woman, a social outcast, embarrassed by her condition, she's perpetually unclean, finagles her way into the crowd, makes her way to Jesus, not in front of him, but behind him. And, and verse 44 says, touches the fringe of his garment. Just believe if she touches the fringe of his garment, there's going to be help. Jesus would have had tassels at the end of his robe, according to God's command in Deuteronomy 22 and verse 12. That's what Jewish men wore as reminders to them to be obedient to God's law. And she didn't just brush up against, just brush up against them. Friends, she was desperate. What does she, what does she have to lose? She grabbed one. It's the same Greek word that's there. When she says that she touched his, his garment, the same Greek word used in John 20 and verse 17 when Jesus says to Mary Magdalene after he rises, don't cling to me. Same Greek word. She grabbed one. And she probably didn't pull it, but as he's walking, she's grabbing his tassel and walking with him saying, I just need to be near the Savior. I need to be healed. After 12 years... The condition doesn't improve. It doesn't lighten up. It's gone. Gone. Instantly healed. And Jesus, in verse 45, says, Whoa, 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 whoa. Who was it that touched me? Okay, look at verse 45. When, who denied it? When all denied it, that means she lied. When all denied it, it wasn't me, it wasn't, I, yeah, I don't know, it wasn't me. Peter says, 
don't know if you've noticed, there's like a lot of people around you, Master. Like, they're pressing in. Who didn't touch you would be the better question. I mean, like, everyone's just touching you. They're all pressing in on you. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. Someone, someone, stop. Someone touched me. For I perceive that power has gone out from me. It's because when Jesus was healing people, it was very personal. It's not just like, yeah, I just got this aura of power, and if people just happen to be within a certain radius of me, they just get healed. Kind of awesome like that. It's very personal. No, no, whoa. I perceive that power has gone out from me. Jesus wasn't asking because he didn't know. He was asking because he wanted to not just restore her physically, but to restore her socially as well. Which brings us to our next point. You need to understand, you're not just part of the whole. Just a bunch of sheep, just one of the sheep, just part of the crowd. You're loved and cared for as a person, an individual child of God. And Jesus was willing to be interrupted if it meant he could put his love and power and compassion on display. That's why, even though he's walking around, when Jairus falls at his feet, he's willing to go with him. Jairus technically has less faith than the centurion a couple of chapters ago, who's like, I know you can heal my servant remotely. Jairus is like, I feel like you need to be in the house with me. Jesus doesn't believe, be gone. You don't believe me? He goes with him. He goes with him. Why? Because he has compassion on him. As this woman is scared as she is, she's ceremonially unclean. She's a social outcast. She comes up and just, I just want to, I'm just going to, oh, I've grabbed the robe of the Savior and walks with him. He's willing to stop and say, whoa, who, who touched me? Crowds don't get Jesus' attention. People do. People do. Individual people, individual sheep with names and stories and pains and griefs and sorrows. People get the Savior's attention. Jesus isn't so flock-focused, so broadly focused that he doesn't have time for a sheep in need. Verse 47 When the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, similar to Jairus, and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, only time in all the gospels Jesus uses that word to address a woman, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. What was hoped by her to be very private, I'm just going to touch his robe and I'm going to leave. Jesus had different plans. In fact, the Greek term translated in your English Bible, your faith has made you well, it's a form of the verb commonly referring to salvation. Back in Luke 7 and verse 50, when the woman breaks her alabaster flask on Jesus' feet, it's the same root word when Jesus says to her, your faith has saved you, go in peace. And so this woman who was planning, just, I, just, I just want to be near, the, I have this condition, I just need to be near Jesus, I just want to touch his robe, I just want a quick heal, I don't want to bother him, I'm unclean, I don't even need to be, I just want to, what she wanted to be very personal and very private, just wanted to be healed physically, 
Jesus restored her physically. He restored her socially by publicly declaring that she was a daughter of the king. Making sure everybody knew she was no longer unclean. Restored her physically, restored her socially, and restored her spiritually. She came looking for physical healing quietly, and she left healed and restored to the Jewish community and saved a born-again child of God. Isn't that special? Isn't that beautiful? It's an unbelievable display of Christ's power and compassion. It's beautiful for us to read and gaze upon the power and compassion of Christ. It's just not beautiful for Jairus. He's kind of in a rush. His daughter's on death's door. And here Jesus is stopping saying, who touched me when he knows who touched him and why couldn't we just, just, just heal her and let's go? This delay could prove to be fatal for my daughter, Jairus was thinking, and it ultimately is. Verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your, your daughter's dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Just wasn't in the cards. And so Jesus was so life-giving to this woman who was bleeding for 12 years, 12 years. And as life-giving as he was to her, that was actually life-taking for Jairus' daughter. But Jesus, on hearing this, verse 50, answered him saying, do not fear, only believe and and she will be well. Now, this isn't Jesus tying her healing to Jairus' belief, not at all. He's encouraging him. He's reassuring him. Hey, you, you believe I can help, right? You came, you, came, you came to me, bro. Like, just believe. This is not hard for me. I can do this. You came and got me for a reason. Just keep believing. I can, I can help. Verse 51 says, And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and James and John. This is the first time Peter, James, and John were singled out like that. It happens throughout the Gospels, but this is the first. Except Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the child. He goes inside, and the funeral was in full swing. Now, you need to know that Jewish, Jewish funerals weren't like quiet and somber like ours are, but were actually really chaotic. Like, really chaotic. People would wail and weep loudly. Mourners were hired to wail and weep loudly to kind of set the tone. They would tear their clothes. That's bizarre in any situation, right? So all of a sudden start tearing your clothes. So, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a chaotic mess. Add to the fact that it's a 12-year-old who is, a, who is the deceased, and that just adds to the sadness. Add to the fact that Jairus was a leader in the synagogue, so he was well-known in the community. I mean, this was just a complete chaotic mess that Jesus came up into. Verse 52, Jesus says, Do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And so people are like, we're crying. We got it. This is, we got to laugh. Like, I'm no doctor, but I know dead when I see it. That girl's dead. Okay, she's just, she's just sleeping. But sleep is used as a metaphor for death throughout the scriptures, isn't it? Reminding us that death is actually Temporary. Our bodies sleep in death, but the soul lives on. 
So Jesus wasn't saying she wasn't dead. She's just saying, that's still not hard for me. I can wake the dead. Verse 53 says, they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But remember, touch is a powerful thing. Taking her by the hand. Right? Just kneeling down at her bedside, taking her by the hand. Remember, Jesus healed the centurion servant from afar. It's not like, well, this is standard, <clears throat> standard protocol for miracles. Like, you've got to touch the person, right? Like, nope. He's compassionate. Taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned. That's her spirit returned. It's not some powerful life force that energized her. Her spirit returned. Jesus reunited her body with her spirit. She got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. In verse 56, can you believe this? Can we just read this and say, what are you? Look at verse 56. And her parents were amazed. And what Jesus' response Parents are like, oh my gosh, she's alive, she's alive, she's alive, she's alive, she's alive. And Jesus is like, don't tell anyone. Don't. Don't tell anyone? It's not that Jesus wanted to keep, Jesus is obviously, he's God, he's smart. He knows that news like this isn't going to be kept quiet. But it brings us to our final point. Jesus is more than a miracle worker. He's the crucified and risen Savior. Jesus didn't want his ministry to be hindered by everyone thinking he was a miracle worker. Miracles were like secondary. He's happy to do them. He's compassionate. He loves people. He heals them. He feeds them. We see this throughout the Gospels. He's compassionate. But to think he's a miracle worker falls woefully short of the fact that he came to die for sinners and rise again so we might be saved. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 and following. And I, Paul says, when I came to you, brothers, did not come preaching to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Galatians 6 and verse 14. But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and following. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. We have an all-powerful, all-compassionate Savior in Jesus Christ who loves us collectively as the flock, as a group, loves the flock, and individually as sheep. Collectively as a group of people from whom he died, but individually as individual sheep, sheep with names, sheep with maladies, sheep with weaknesses that he knows, and yes, he cares, we know he cares. Jesus was a miracle worker, but not just a miracle worker. He was a healer, but not just a healer. He was a teacher, but not just a teacher. He came to die for sinners like you and like me, personally, individually, so that we might be saved if we really, truly believe he bore our sins on the cross, died, buried, and was raised from the grave. 
We read in the book of Revelation. It doesn't say worthy is the lamb who healed. Worthy is the lamb who taught. Worthy is the lamb who fed thousands. Worthy is the lamb who was... What is called to our mind? Worthy is the lamb who was what? Slain. And that's why Jesus is like, don't, this should not be the thing that I'm known for. What I should be known for is coming to reconcile sinful human beings with a holy God. People who would have no, you don't have a shot, you don't have a shot of having a relationship with God in and of yourself. Neither could I. Not a shot. You can't work your way into that status. You can't get rid of your sinful nature. Zero hope. He's like, this is what I want to be known for. I came to preach the kingdom of God and to die as the perfect sacrifice for sinners so that they could be made right with God. I have come to undo what happened in the Garden of Eden. And that's why Jesus doesn't want to be just known as a teacher, as a miracle worker, as somebody who is just compassionate, but he is all compassionate and all powerful. And all those who know and love Christ as Savior can say, oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. I know my Savior cares. And the greatest grief that gets his attention was the grief that he's already taken care of on the cross by dying for our sins and making it even possible that we might have a shot at having a relationship with our God. What about you? What about you? When you think of Jesus, is he the guy who died for a lot of people? Or is he the Savior who died for you? I believe that Jesus died for sinners before I was a Christian. Like, I didn't doubt that. I was taught that. Mom was faithful to teach us that. I believe that Jesus died for sinners before I was a Christian. I was saved when I believed he died for me. When it became very, very personal. And it was like, oh, it's not just there's a bunch of people with a big problem called sin and Jesus took care of that problem. Very general. It was, oh, no. It's not that people needed a Savior. I need a Savior. It's not that Jesus just died for a bunch of people. Jesus died for Peter Joseph LaRufa Jr., became very personal because Jesus cared for me, died for me, came to this earth for me to reconcile me with God. Is it that way for you? If it is, praise God. We have a Savior, and we know he cares. But if it's not that way for you, it is my hope and my prayer that you would respond to Jesus realizing, oh, yes, he cares. You, you know he cares. Cares enough to come to this world, to live a perfect life, and to die on the cross. Not just for people, but for you and you and you and you and you. Individual people. That he bore the wrath of God that was going towards you and you and you and you and you. And because he bore the wrath of God that was going towards you and you and you and you and me. Do you know who doesn't have to suffer? You and you 
and you and you and you and me. Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. If you believe that he cares, if you believe that he died, if you believe that he was buried, if you believe that he rose again, if you believe that he did ascend to the, to the heavens, if you believe that he's coming again, you too can be saved because he cares. We know he cares. Lord, we come before you grateful for your compassion, grateful for your power, grateful for your saving grace at work in our lives. Lord, we do pray for those who are in need of a reminder of your love for them. Lord, we pray that you would, from heaven, would you touch their heart? Would you touch their mind? Would you give comfort where it's needed? Would you give strength where it's needed? Would you give courage where it's needed? Would you give hope, restore hope where it is needed? And would you heal for your glory? We also pray, Lord, would you draw people to yourself this day, reminding them of how much you care, enough to come to this planet, enough to live on this planet, enough to die on a cross and to rise again. Oh, God in heaven, we pray that you would save souls. In Jesus' name, amen.